Hello and welcome to the Frame Loop podcast. It is the 26th of March 2013. My name is Luke Richardson, sitting here in Copenhagen, Denmark. And joining me, as ever, is the wonderful Mr. Rob Fred Parker. How are you doing, Rob? Hi, Luke. Really great to hear from you again. How are you doing? I'm really good, Rob, thanks. Uh, We're recording this on uh, Easter week, uh, or just coming up to Easter, so I've been stocking up on uh, hot cross buns and uh, been rejoicing in our Saviour Christ, and uh, yeah, just been generally having a great time, living living La Vida something. Uh, what have you been up to, Rob? I've been living La Vida Easter, uh, really living it up. I had a bake-off at my workplace yesterday, and I'm very happy to say that I recorded my second workplace bake-off victory with a honey date and almond cake. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't made it before. I mean, my my... You know, approached the baking very slapdash. I just kind of got a recipe, didn't have all the stuff, didn't have any walnuts, um, didn't really have the right sugar, but I just kind of winged it and it turned out all right. I mean, I got it out of the oven, like it, it was like honey, honey dates, and I crushed up some almonds and stuff. Got it out of the oven and it was completely burnt all the way around the edges. Like, I, it was incredibly firm, completely burnt. But I just got like a chef's knife and cut all the edges off. So I was just left with like quite a flat sort of rectangular cake. Um, and then when when I was transporting it out of like the baking tray, it split in two. Um, but luckily, like, because I, I didn't know what to do, but I iced it in the end, and I kind of paved over the cracks, put some almonds on. Sugar as adhesive. That's very good. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, and I I got some. So yeah, so I sort of made some like buttercream icing, put some honey in there, put some mixed spice, sort of mix it up. And um, yeah, I was really pleased with the output. Um, yeah, it was high standard of baking once again. There was some lemon curd squares which were which were absolutely delectable um but yeah that's really buoyed my spirits i'm full i'm full of baked goods and i'm feeling good oh i'm glad to hear you're so uh buoyant today and um we apologize that it's been a while since we've done the last one of these podcasts we've been rather busy boys of course rob's been making cakes and i've been predominantly eating cakes this weekend uh just gone but we are back in full speed and this week We are looking at one theme in particular. Last week we were discussing fire as a theme, and this week we have the word jungle. And it's a very exciting one, a very wild one. So this uh, could be a pretty gnarly show, I think. But before we get onto a thematic discussion around that theme, we'd like to kick off uh, saying what we've been up to exactly culturally. Now, Rob, of course, we already know that you've been making cakes uh, all of your life now, it seems, and you're quite the professional at it. But culturally, what's uh, tickling your fondant fancies this week? Well, this week, um, London was, well, my part of London, eh, southwest London, was blighted by a lot of snow. It was pretty horrible this weekend. Um, so I, I opted to stay in with my flatmates. I drank lots of chai tea and I visited a website called thespace.org. Um, the space has been up and running for I think about a year now. It's a platform for arts on demand, and it's um, essentially uh, established uh, to be a digital service um, in partnership with uh, Arts Council England funds it in partnership with the BBC, 
Um, so on this website you'll find full-length performances streamed, so you'll have theatre, visual arts, uh, written mediums, uh, and then you'll have um, interviews with artists, um, backstage content at places like the Royal Opera House and National Theatre, um, and you also have original commissions. Um, so one of their big projects last year was bringing John Peel's private record collection onto, onto the web. Um, so they essentially gain access to his collection. They um, they categorised every record, so you actually have each record represented online with John Peel's own um, cat category notes, and you're able to to listen to the records through Spotify. You can also browse around his study, which is really great, vibrant with all of these records and also lots of paraphernalia of his. Um, record listening life. Um, you've also got like original photos and posters in there, um, and then you've got archive of radio shows, peel sessions as well. So it's it's incredibly rich um, with content. One of the most recent projects um, that the space produced was in partnership with BBC Writers Room, which is a resource for um, getting uh, aspiring writers uh, writing, uh, get, supporting them, but also commissioning new work. Um, and what the uh, what they commissioned together was a series of four plays called the Parade, um, and this sort of aims to look at uh, modern day Britain, particularly the high street. Um, look at how the high street is sort of decaying and in downturn, fueled by our much more um, online. Uh, approach to shopping these days. So you have four plays. They're set in a pound shop, um, a newsagent, a kebab outlet, and then there's there's one set in a flat which is above a off license. Um, and these plays were written by uh, four uh, four writers who are at the sort of beginnings of their career: Kenneth Emerson, Catherine Mitchell, Rebecca Presswich, and a man Paul Singh. Um, they were originally staged by Live Theatre in Newcastle. They were also recorded for Radio Free and filmed for the website. Um, I was really there was one that really stood out for me. I, I think the the quality was was pretty high across the four plays, but the one that really stood out for me and I watched it on Saturday. I've still got lines of dialogue um, and just the overall sort of the 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 kind of sustained tone of it has really stuck with me since uh, since then. Um, it's called These Small Tragedies. It's an 11-minute film. Each of the four films are about, third, well, I think the longest one's about 30 minutes, but you're around about the 10-minute 10 mar 10 mark. Um, so this one was written by Kenneth Emerson, directed by Alan Lane. Uh, it's a freehander. You have John Catterall, Lauren Redding, and Paul Cooper. And it's basically these characters in a convenience market setting. Um, and they're essentially reflecting on a rather um, traumatic event that kind of bound their their characters together. Otherwise, they they'd have no relation. They they're essentially strangers bound together by this by this one happening. Um, and it's it's kind of what I think it explores is the what it's like to to witness and experience distressing events and how the, the mind tries to cope with trauma um, in the fallout of these events. It also sort of discusses the, like I said, the, the overarching theme of the series is uh, a move away from kind of community-led community, community -led, um, shopping uh, habits. And, um, but more, more broadly, how, how each, um, how so much of the public is uh, a living more digital digitized lives these days and sort of experiencing life through a filter of technology. Um, I think the play has some really precise dialogue. 
very convincing performances as well by the three actors. And it's just very unsettling, very affecting. Um, the the set of plays is you know fairly serious. We're looking at quite quite um, quite pertinent themes here. That in uh, in particularly that there's a there's a film called No More Pound Shop Wars, which is probably um, yeah it's definitely up there. It's one of my favourites of the series. Um, it definitely introduces um, some more comedic aspects as well. Whilst um, but this this doesn't sort of affect the the overall um, power of the piece. Um, but yeah, no, I I, I really do recommend. Um, that series of plays, I think, uh, some work more than others, but I think it's it's an incredibly um, effective uh, series by by the Space and BBC Writers Room. Um, other projects that you can check out on the Space are um, animated sh Shakespeare films. Uh, these were made by students from Central Saint Martin's, and they sort of explore the works of the Bard as well as different processes of animation. Um, there's a series of films backstage at the Royal Opera House which are really enlightening. There are interviews with lots of artists such as Chuck Close. Um, and there's also, um, what the stage have been doing is that they've been delving into the archives of um, the BBC documentary Arena. Um, Arena was a really great long-running, um, very very comprehensive look at different artists and different issues in the art and in in the arts and the creative industries. There's one called Searching for the Wrong Eyed Jesus, which is essentially um, delves into the the life of the songwriter Jim White and goes on him uh, goes with him on a road trip around the uh, American uh, the so southern portion of of America, which is which is really great. It's a really um, very enthralling watch. Um, so do check out thespace.org. That sounds great, Rob. Yeah, I, I was only really aware of it. Um, I think it actually was launched around with the, the John Peel archives. And I remember being quite, quite overwhelmed by, uh, by the space. And uh, I will definitely have to check out the rest of what they've got going on there. It's interesting how they're looking at archiving in this sort of digital realm. And uh, there's definitely something admirable and worth checking out there. So that's great. Um, I've sort of as, as well this uh, last week or so been looking backwards uh, through culture's history and looking at one man particularly who's made a ebullient return uh, of late and it's Mr David Bowie. Now I don't want people to think that I'm just joining in with the hyperbole. I'm not going to say about how brilliant the, uh, the latest album The Next Day is. But it's certainly worth a mention, I think, for the podcast, uh, looking back at David Bowie's career as what, for me, is pretty much the ultimate innovator of uh, not only just music, but uh, British, the U uh, UK's culture. Before I go more into detail with that, it's perhaps apt that we do play at least a clip from one of the songs on the new album. So this is Dirty Boys and, uh, yeah, a bit more about Bowie after the track. Fair. 
another hat I will steal a cricket bat Smash some windows, make a noise We will run the dirty boys When the sun goes down When the sun goes down and the die is cast When the die is cast and you have no And that was a clip of Dirty Boys, the second track on David Bowie's latest album, The Next Day. The album itself was released on the 8th of March, so a couple of weeks ago now. And generally it's been uh, receiving kind of renowned reviews across the board. Uh, People say it's a return to form for Bowie. It actually gave him his first UK number one album in uh, 20 years since Black Tie, White Noise, a project that he had in 1993. And I'm not going to take some great amount of time to review the album as such. Uh, What interests me particularly is how anachronistic it is. Um, People, uh, many people have commented on the artwork for the for the album and I don't know if you've seen that Rob, have you? Yeah. So So it's a a portrait, right? Well exactly, it's taking what is perhaps uh, his most iconographic image, uh, the album artwork for one of his most lauded albums, Heroes, uh, where you have a portrait of David Bowie and in the artwork for the next day, the new album, covering Bowie's face, you have just a white box and the words in the middle saying the next day. And above his head, the title Heroes is uh, scribbled out. And that sort of uh, looking backwards uh, kind of pervades the album entirely, really. And that really uh, got me thinking about my own affectation with uh, David Bowie. And I've always been a huge fan of his. I think it's something that I've uh, kind of embraced through my uh, through my family, through my parenting, and it's quite remarkable when you look back just how significant this guy has been to all of the cultural world. You you think about it for for one, he's a gender pr- provocateur. He's kind of really opened up the boundaries of androgyny. Um, of course, he's uh, well well read as well. He's a kind of beat literature expert. He was a mime at one point, an avant-garde actor in the films of like Nicholas Rogue, for example, The Man Who Fell to Earth, a clothing designer, and of course, a style icon, um, as has been uh, cu- currently lamented by the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, where they're looking back at his uh, clothing, uh, which is still like really uh, peerless when you look back at this guy's career. And I, uh, you know, I, I pretty much just spent a week or so like listening back to everything uh, that he's done musically, being really amazed by it. Of course, there's some things that I prefer more so than others. And uh, one in particular, I, I think it was uh, called Earthling, an album from the mid 90s, maybe 97, which was uh, David Bowie's foray into drum and bass music. That was something that I think he could have perhaps uh, left on in the recording studio and not really unleashed into the world. But even still, that proves that this guy, at 66 years old now, is willing to take uh, some risks. Um, I, well, the, what I would pr- predominantly like to just say about what I've been most impressed by is it will be in the show notes for this podcast and also we'll put it on theframeloop.com. There was a documentary from 1975 put out by the BBC 
and uh, it was called Cracked Actor, uh, directed and produced by the now creative director of the BBC, Alan Yentob. And uh, this this is relatively unseen by a kind of contemporary, uh, in uh, I imagine contemporary uh, fans of David Bowie, but it's certainly worth uh, checking out. It's actually on YouTube right now, and it follows David Bowie as he's uh, going across America, trying to break it over there because. Of course, for me and Rob, uh, coming from England, he's always been huge, David Bowie. Um, that wasn't that success wasn't always passed over to America. So we see him pretty much at the lowest period of his life when he's rake thin. Um, he's very much going crazy on the cocaine and speaking in this kind of warb warbling, um, almost William S. Burroughs sort of way. He's very incoherent, but what he's saying seems to be somehow incredible, like he's very eloquent even still, he calls himself a foreign body in America. And it's really interesting to look at it, to see him as a, a prophet of eccentricity, if you will, um, and also as a polymath artist, like we just see him working directly with the lyrics that he's creating, designing his clothing, and uh, just generally being an absolute legend, and I think that it, it's really worth saying it. So that's called Cracked Actor. Um, it's about 50 minutes long and it will be in the show notes for this podcast. I do recommend if you've got a spare hour or so to check it out because it really, it almost is quite haunting how you can look back at uh, that period from 1975 and now almost 30 years later. Uh, 30 years? 40 years? Is that what? Yeah, almost 40 years, yeah. Almost 40 years. God, he's been around for ages. Almost 40 years later to see how this guy really... Although he's been away for 10 years, uh, he's come back with great aplomb and um, he's constantly interesting. More interesting than many other artists uh, of that age. For example, Eric Clapton, who's just released a new album, which is really, really terrible. Of course it is. He's very... Well, you know what? He's very consistent, though. You have to give that to him. He's incredibly insistent. That's a, that's a really key example of someone that's always been huge in America, of an English artist that's been huge in America, that, uh, quite frankly, they can have him. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone that likes Eric Clapton. No, thanks. And, um, yeah, so don't listen to Eric Clapton's new album. If you haven't listened to The Next Day yet, the new David Bowie, do pick it up. It's certainly worth a listen. Now that I've rambled on about David Bowie, I think it's about time we get to the core section of the podcast today, and it's discussion around the theme of jungle. And before that, uh, it's perhaps out that we play a little song. So let's go for this one. That was Cool and the Gang with Jungle Boogie. A great rousing song there, and certainly one that you're going to be dancing to now as we discuss the theme of 
jungle. So if this is the first time that you've listened to the Frame Loop podcast, firstly, thank you. Very kind for you to be listening to us for this 45 minutes or so. What we like to do is take one key theme and discuss it in some detail, looking at various different cultural sectors. So, for example, we're going to be looking today at literature, films, music, of course, with the some that we've just played. And you can also go to the website, theframeloop.com, to find more information about the music that we've been playing. We've actually compiled a playlist, for example, uh, on Spotify, which you can go follow and listen to right now, which has got some absolute stonking good songs, stuff from Joy Division, Eels, Cornelius, a Japanese artist, Rainbow Arabia, Johnny Flynn, The Cadets, Sly and the Family Stone. There is so much stuff that you need to put in your ears at that playlist. And this is where I hand you over to the capable warm baking hands of Mr. Rob Fred Parker. Your turn, Rob. Sure, okay, so the Frame Luke Book Club is now in session. Um, today we'll be looking at the, a book called The Naturalist on the River Amazons by Walter Henry Bates. Uh, so this was published in 1859. Uh, Bates was an English naturalist and explorer, and the book uh, is a compilation of his journals from a period, um, 11 year period, when he went to explore Brazil. Um, so he left in 1848 and he arrived in Belém, first of all. He then ventured along the Cometa on the Tocantins River and up to the Amazon. Um, he was then based in Tefe, where he was he set up camp and was based for four years. Um, by by the end of the eleven period, he sent back over fourteen thousand insect specimens, eight thousand of which were completely new to science. Um, so he was um, a very established and really revered uh, scientist. So he he was um, filing observations of um, animals like jaguars, turtles, alligators, birds, snakes, um, which seemed in incredibly exotic and really rather alien, not only to him witnessing them firsthand, but also when he was sending his accounts over to um, scientific organisations in the UK. Uh, he, he worked with the British Museum a great deal, and he actually sent a lot of um, actual specimens over to the British Museum. Um, but I mean the the people who were receiving these specimens had, had never seen anything like it really. So it was um it was a real period of, of great discovery. Um and his his uh his explorations really did benefit science in a in a very interesting way. Um so it has great scientific like quality, this book. Um, but it's also really well written. Um, there, there's very vivid descriptions of his time in Amazon, um, uh, and he, he spends a lot of um, extended periods with different settlements and different uh, tribes. So you actually get a lot of really detailed and really, um, really quite um, interesting anthropological observations as well. Um, he's He's fairly. He's very open-minded, and he's very um, warm uh, to, towards uh, the different settlements. And they, they're actually, for the most part, they're very welcoming of him as well. Which I think it's because he's a, he was able to spend quite a, an extended period uh, with with these tribes of peoples that he he did actually. He was pretty much just welcomed into their uh, into their communities for a long time. There's um, a really great. Uh, 
a particular anecdote which I found really incredibly interesting is when he's in Katua, uh, which is a settlement on, on the Amazon, and he gets invited along to the annual uh, turtle egg harvest. Um, this is where whole populations of villages, so um, generations of families will get involved. You'll get about 400 people um, families in canoes and then they try and harvest the turtle eggs which they called tabulero. Um, they dig these out of water banks so um, you get um, elders banging drums and then on the river everyone digs into the water waterbeds to try and um, scoop out the eggs um, and then you're left with mounds of eggs about four to five feet high um, these are then thrown into an empty canoe and mashed with prongs so um, the, the descriptions of the kind of the sort of the chaotic, all, all the action, all the vigorous action going along, all the youngsters um, getting overexcited and mashing the eggs with their feet into the bed of the canoe. Uh, it's it's really it's really vivid stuff. Um, and then the the oil that um, uh, the the oil that's the product of this um, of this process is then exported from the um, Amazon villages up into the upper Amazons and out to Para. Then it's used for fish frying, uh, lighting, and stuff. Um, so, so yeah, so it's basically a description of this process. It uses about 48 million eggs annually. Um, it's it's really very fine, um, very fine anecdote. And there's a really great humour as well. He's talking about a big turtle skull that he finds, and then sends back to the British Museum. And he gets a report saying that they're gonna they're gonna display it in a really prominent place in the museum. And he he speaks for a number of pages about how proud he is about this um, which so there is a great humor um, some of it's intentional I think sometimes um, he's very much in awe of nature but I think sometimes um, he just he has a certain mischievous uh, quality to him um, so here's a quote this is um, this is a journal entry when he's in Katua and it concerns uh, his interactions with alligators one day I amused myself by taking a basket full of fragments of meat beyond the line of the ranchos and drawing the alligators towards me by feeding them. They behaved pretty much as dogs do when fed, catching the bones I threw them in their large jaws and coming nearer and showing increased eagerness after every morsel. The enormous gape of their mouths, with their blood-red lining and long fringes of teeth and the uncouth shape of their bodies, made a picture of unsurpassable ugliness. I once or twice fired a heavy charge of shot at them, aiming at the vulnerable part of their bodies, which is a small space situated between the eyes. But this had no other effect than to make them give me a horse grunt and shake themselves. They immediately afterwards turned to receive another bone I threw to them. Uh, so from that quote, he's pretty much just, he's just trying to rile up some alligators. Like he starts out saying, yeah, you know, it's all about scientific inquiry. I want to see how the species uh, acts when they're being friend, what they, how they act when they're being fed. But he he just ends up just like throwing bones at them, trying to rile them up. Um, so so like I said, there's there's great humour um, in the novel. It almost kind of reminded me at times of. The Jerome K. Jerome book, uh, Three Men on a Boat, which is very much um, a comedy, very much played for laughs, looking at the sort of upper class Englishmen in the late 19th century just um, messing around on a boat, pretty much. Um, and there, there are instances where it does sort of verge into that sort of comic territory. Um, there's lots of people falling out of boats. There's lots of um, riding up alligators. There's also, you know, lots of people getting attacked by, by alligators and stuff. Um, but yeah, but it's, it's a very rich uh, book indeed. Um, 
Penguin actually um, published a sort of, it's basically an extract of, of the longer work um, in 2007. So that's called In the Heart of the Amazon Forest, and it's part of their Great Journeys series. Uh, it's a very fine series. I've read another volume um, that was by Mark Twain. Um, and then you've got, you've got other writers such as um, George Orwell, so you've got Fighting in Spain, um, Chekhov, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, Marco Polo. So you've got some really notable names um, in the history of travel exploration, but also some, some very, very fine writers in their own right as well. Um, so do check that out. Um, if you have a look on the website, we have a more extensive list of jungle-themed literature. So in, in addition to the to literal interpretations of the theme of jungle, we'll also have a look at more metaphorical interpretations. Um, so we'll have a novel called Remainder by Tom McCarthy, which looks at how the human mind and memory can be um, almost a, like a jungle for, for someone to um, journey through and make sense of, of past experiences. Uh, but do check out on the website and leave us a comment if you think we've left we've missed out anything. Thanks for that, Rob. Uh, I haven't read that, so I'll definitely have to read it uh, in some time. And of course, go to theframeloop.com to see the rest of Rob's literature picks and also my film picks relating to the theme of jungle. There's uh, about five or so up there, maybe even a bit more than that, that uh, loosely link to this theme. Uh, a little teaser perhaps, we have ones up there from uh, Lord of the Flies uh, up to more recent films like The Beach uh, from Danny Boyle. Really worth checking out all of those that are on the list, can't recommend them enough. But we've decided to pick one of those in particular to look at on the Frame Loop podcast and it's the film Fitzcarraldo. It's from 1982, directed by the German director, uh, of course from the new German cinema movement, Mr Werner Herzog. And it stars Klaus Kinski as the title character Fitzcarraldo, aka Brian Sweeney Fitzgerald. And he has the lofty idea to build an opera in the jungle. We're going to discuss the film in some more detail, but firstly, let's listen to the trailer. So that was the trailer there for Fitzcarraldo, the film that we're discussing in more detail today around the theme of jungle. And Fitzcarraldo is the title character who is an obsessed opera lover who decides to build an opera in the jungle. Uh, to accomplish this, first he must make a fortune in the rubber business in Peru. And his cunning plan involves hauling an enormous riverboat across a small mountain with aid from the local Peruvian natives. This is quite a famous film, quite a hefty film from 1982. 
It's around two and a half hours in length, uh, one of the more famous uh, fiction films from Werner Herzog, who was also the writer of this film. Allegedly, it's based on the real-life account of a Peruvian rubber baron called Carlos Fitzgerald, and quite a phenomenal story. Uh, if you haven't seen this, it's a pretty distinctive film. It has some, very much has some Werner Herzog tropes in there, looking at nature. What is quite fascinating with it for me, I found, is that even though this isn't a documentary, which of course Werner Herzog is famous for, particularly in his more contemporary days, uh, with films like Death Row most recently, uh, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, Grizzly Man, and so on, it has this appreciation for the, this, the landscape, even the natives to Peru, where they filmed the film, that has this documentary flourish to it, which I found really, really inspiring and uh, quite peculiar, really, for what is effectively a grandiose adventure film. Rob, what did you think about this film in particular? I know that this is one that you've uh, seen many a few times. What did you think? Like you said, I mean, it is, it's a fiction, it's a narrative film. But I think um, there's so much, uh, from particularly from Herzog, but also from Kinski, their their sort of their personalities and their personal lives that feeds into the film and really just makes it uh, an incredibly compelling watch. The more you sort of, I mean, it's it's compelling um, as in uh, itself, just as a film. But the more you sort of learn about it, it just becomes just so such a fascinating piece of piece of artwork really um so like you said it's it's basically about Fitzcarraldo's very lofty mission almost too ambitious and nowhere near pragmatic enough to be realized um so it's it's kind of a story about artistic endeavor um but both uh, Herzog and Kinski had so much invested in the films and filmmaking in general their lives were sort of defined by a strive to create and that kind of overwhelmed everything else really their, their lives were also sort of marred by a certain destruction. Kinski, Klaus Kinski was quite psychotic, really, quite um, quite actively psychotic, and he was very much an actively and expressive megalomaniac, whereas Herzog was no less a megalomaniac, but he was quite passive and introverted. He was kind of driven by these insatiable desires to create these um, these incredible, you know, heart-stopping films. Whereas Kinski was uh, driven by by to be uh, to be, you know, the most compelling actor of his generation. Um, but the the film was very much blighted by this sort of destructive, uh, a series of very destructive events. First of all, when Herzog was trying to get the project off the ground, he'd worked with Kinski um, on a number of films before. I think they they did five films um, together. They they'd already made three before: Aguirre, Wrath of God. Wojciech and Nosferatu the Vampire. Um, so Herzog had the script, he really wanted this to be the fourth film that he made with Kinski, because Kinski was almost like, uh, he had a very much love-hate relationship with him. The kind of, the, the turmoil between um, Herzog and Kinski came to a head so much when they were shooting Aguirre. Kinski basically um, threatened to storm off, like they, they were a number of months into shooting, he threatened to storm off, um, Herzog just handed it placidly, uh, he went up to him, you know, uh, calm as you like. He, he, he recounts this story in the documentary My Best Fiend, um, he recounts this to, to camera and you can see there's a sort of fire burning in his eyes, although he, he's delivering the story so calmly. He's, he went up to Kinski and said, you know, this we're, we've, we've shot for three months, you're about to leave. You should know that if you get in the steamboat, I won't stop you, but I will shoot eight shots in your direction, and the ninth shot will be for me. 
and then after that, Kinski was was just absolutely raving. He he just went around like trying to find police officers. So that tells you about like the erratic nature of Kinski and also the sort of the the just deep conviction of Herzog. Um, he has this deep desire to to make films. So they were quite an interesting yin yin and yang um, in this uh, quite destructive but also very creative uh, relationship. Um, like I mentioned, the the documentary My Best Fiend is it's just really incredible as much as and much as Herzog's uh, narrative films, it's it's such a compelling watch. Yeah, I, I think that that uh, tumultuous, caustic relationship that they have, it kind of emanates in this film as well. It perhaps is in all of the films that they did together, Klaus Kinski and Werner Herzog. But going specifically back to Fitzgeraldo, this is actually the thing that, for me, makes it quite apt that we look at it within the theme of jungle as well. Um, of course, it is set and shot in the jungle. Uh, so you've, of course, got the more literal uh, circumstances there. But that sort of recklessness, I think, and that, that wild nature, it kind of really emanates on the screen. And that also, for me at least, personally, led to quite a jarring watching experience. I think that Her Werner Herzog is a very literal filmmaker. He isn't one for um, kind of subtext or anything like that. But there was, for me, this really... Uh, un queasy it kind of made me queasy this colonial edge that this this film had for example Klaus Kinsey he's got this like peroxide blonde hair uh, he's wearing this decrepit almost rotting white linen suit pretty much for, throughout the film's entirety and he is shouting yelling uh, on this pursuit uh, to bring this ship up the uh, the mountain in the uh, Peruvian jungle and you just see all of these quite solemn, quite glum-looking uh, Peruvian natives surrounding him whilst he's standing there with a cigar. And uh, it kind of, it really, it hit me in a way that I, I wasn't really expecting. Um, I found that quite difficult uh, and quite a jarring experience to watch. I wasn't sure if this was a character that we were supposed to feel compassionate for, of, uh, or is it an eccentric that we should be... Uh, shouldn't really be lamenting, we should be uh, kind of criticising. Um, and I think that Werner Herzog kind of leaves that ambiguously in the open there. It's certainly a film that is worth watching for some of the amazing set pieces, for most notably, and I think perhaps uh, the most famous part of the film is when you do see, without any uh, special effects or trickery, uh, this, I think it's some hundred and... I'm not exactly sure of the the weight of the boat of the ship that they that they're using, but carrying this ship up the mountain uh, without any frills, you just see them, and it's a it's a real feat of um, of of production really that they could, were able to shoot it in this sort of way. But for me, it was a very hysterical film. It's a very brash film as well to watch as in particularly because of Klaus Kinski's quite fiery uh, persona that he brings to the film. Um, anything else to add on the film, Rob? No, I'd agree that it that it does have like um, it is quite deeply unsettling, really. I mean, it, it builds to to a kind of uh, by the end of the you know conclusion of just over two and a half hours um, because it's it's quite slow burning, um, and it I think there's a there's a really there's a very much a sort of sustained like dread that sort of builds. Um, it's you know compelling but also quite quite unsettling at the same time and I think it kind of looks at like the the strange compulsions of of humans but also um, the the quite the way that um, destruction and creation coexist in nature as well 
Uh, there's a really great quote from uh, Herzog from the documentary where he's he's standing in the jungle where they filmed the film and he's uh, the birds singing around him and he he says birds aren't singing they're screeching in pain and he talks about like the the over the oh yeah so he says the the sound of the, of the jungle is the sound of overwhelming collective murder so I think that gives you um, an insight into the sort of the outlook of Herzog. He he makes these films where um, humans are sort of stretched to their very extreme limits by these strange compulsions that they have. So so yeah, no, I think it sort of looks at the, the sort of nature of obsession, which is interesting because obviously that's like the super text of the film. But then you also get that in in the production in terms of how Herzog and Kinski were were compelled by these. Um, by these desires to create, so I think it that's what makes it so fascinating for me. Sure, I'm not actually. Perhaps you could even say that Werner Herzog. You can very much see him in the character of Fitzgerald. Mm. This is a man that um, he's he's gone on on record to say that he watches very few films. But someone that has uh, some some forty years or so experience of filmmaking, he says he watches around three or four films a year, and they're often the ones that uh, you don't expect him to watch. Uh, he's a big fan of Russ Meyer, who made uh, Beyond the Valley of Dolls, uh, like a quite a sleazy, campy film. Um, but also after this film, I think it was a few years after, he actually went on to do a, a, have a great uh, trend of uh, directing operas himself. So perhaps you can see some of that subtext in there. Who knows? Um, it's certainly an interesting film to watch, and actually have, of course, as, as Rob's already mentioned, there's some really interesting production. Uh, stories that surround this, particularly with the relationship between Kinski and Wurzog. But something else that I, I was really surprised by, I didn't expect, and I saw it in the credits, that the production manager through uh, some of the shoot was George Slusier, who's a uh, French director who went on to make The Vanishing from 1988, which is a really, really amazing thriller, really un profoundly unsettling, which I really recommend people go, go see. And also... Um, a film called Dark Blood, which was would have been River Phoenix's final film, which was uh, finished uh, incomplete and is currently uh, doing the rounds at many film festivals across the world right now. So maybe that will also be in cinemas sometime soon. But anyway, Fitzcarraldo, it's a film around the theme of Jungle from 1982. And I think it gets a hearty recommendation purely for the, the scope and uh, the production technique that was put into this film. And I think that just about wraps up the uh, discussion around Jungle. And if you've got any themes that you think that we could perhaps use uh, for upcoming episodes of the podcast, then of course get in touch. Previously we've had School as a theme, Dive, Fire, and this was Jungle. So who knows where we'll go next. Uh, you'll have to tune in to the next episode to find out. And now what we like to do is mention things that we've got coming up in the next week or so until we record the next podcast. Of course, it is Easter week coming up here, so it's probably a bit of a, uh, a wasteland. Uh, I'm, I know that I'm not really doing much apart from eating copious amounts of hot crust buns, uh, but I do that on a weekly basis anyway, so that's nothing new there. Uh, Rob, what have you got coming up? Uh, well, on Thursday, so that's the 28th of May, I'm really looking forward to an event hosted by the Invisible Dot, who are a group of rather, um, rather brilliant comedy producers. Um, at their HQ in King's Cross, they're hosting a story, uh, storytelling night uh, titled simply Stories. Um, so 
this is being hosted by Liam Williams, who's a a comedian, um, and it will be um, he'll be joined by the likes of Josie Long, the stand-up comedian, uh, Joe Dunthorne, who's a novelist and poet, uh, who's one of my favourite writers right now. Actually, I I do do recommend checking out his novels, and Luke Wright, who's a poet based in Norwich. Uh, Luke and Joe are members of the Isle 16 Collective who put on lots of um, poetry nights which have a great deal of scope and are always really entertaining Um, so I'm really looking forward to that I think um, it's always great when um, storytelling literature and stand-up comedy um, sort of intersect as as long as there's you know um, talent on board then I'm I'm sure it'll be uh, a really enthralling evening so that's on Thursday the 28th of May um, 7.45 in the evening at Invisible Dot in North London. Great. Something coming up uh, tomorrow, actually, I'm going to a press screening of the film that I'll be reviewing for the Copenhagen Post here where I live in Copenhagen. Um, and it's a film that I think uh, I actually saw a couple of months ago at a film festival, but it's worthy of mention, particularly for you over there, Rob, because I know that it hasn't been granted a uh, cinematic release and it's not out on DVD there yet either. It's a documentary from Sarah Polly, and uh, she kind of was a bit of a breakout success last year for the film Take This Waltz, which I didn't actually manage to see in the end. I really, uh, I really wish I would have picked it up, but um, it, it just seemed a little bit syrupy for me. It was a sort of uh, love triangle story. Um, but uh, Sarah Polly, she's kind of uh, been around as an actor for many years, uh, but she's directed as well. Another film which I do recommend of hers that you check out is from 2006, Away From Her, which again is another drama uh, love story. But the film that I'm going to be recommending today is Stories We Tell. Uh, This is a documentary from 2012. It's very much a a personal essay film from her. Uh, She's looking at the somewhat remarkable story of her own upbringing and uh, her family. And what works so well in this film is that she's very fortunate that her, all of her sisters and her brother and her father, they're all really amazing storytellers. And I won't go into the ins and outs of, of the the family story behind the film, uh, because it's very much something that you should uh, see firsthand. It's really, really incredible story. And it, it does kind of make you think that, uh, at least it made me think about my, my upbringing, um, and I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to go all biographical on this shit. But I think we often take for granted the stories that we have about our own our own upbringing and think they're not that remarkable. They're kind of commonplace. Um, there's nothing that extraordinary about our upbringing. But then when you think about it, it's perhaps it's because we're so intertwined within it ourselves. It's it's so normative for us. We actually experienced it, and it made me think there must be so many fascinating stories. Uh, that other people have to share about their own upbringings and that film really gets to the core of that Uh, so stories we tell as I said I don't think it's actually available on DVD or it won't be available on cinema in the UK it gets released in cinemas here on April the 3rd perhaps it will be on DVD sometime over there with you soon Rob and I think that just about wraps it up for this podcast from the frame loop be sure to go to theframeloop.com to check out all the rest of the things that we've been uh, getting up to, things that we're interested in. And also, of course, if you'd like to contribute as well, you can do so. Uh, get in contact with us. It's on Twitter. My name is Luke underscore Richardson. And you can find Rob Fred Parker at Rob Fred Parker on Twitter. 
leave us comments. You can uh, talk to us on SoundCloud as well if you want. Podomatic. We're pretty much everywhere and uh, we're all ears. We'll also be getting a few more recipes up, hopefully, as you mentioned to me uh, slightly before we started recording. Rob? Yes, I hope so. I hope to put up my, um, my Bake Off winning uh, cake recipe. So look out for that. Excellent. If you want, what, what was the, the big prize that you got? Um, it was, it was uh, to choose the, the charity that we donated the money to. So I chose Ministry of Stories, which is a literacy charity based in Hackney, um, London's poorest borough. And they run um, creative writing, tuition um, and workshops for young children. Um, so it's just basically trying to get them reading books, um, get, them, get them writing um, and so, sort of fostering creativity in, in youngsters. What a wonderful and philanthropic uh, note to end on. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.